You're listening to the Doheny Podcast Network. The Doheny Eye Institute, working for all to see. Your host is Jody Becker. My guest is Dr. Alex Wang. He is an MD-PhD on the faculty at Doheny Eye Institute and convener of the second annual Doheny UCLA International Glaucoma Symposium. It's a meeting of the doctors leading the quest to cure glaucoma, a disease of the eye that affects millions with low vision and can result in blindness. Dr. Wang's own research is focused on fluid flow in the eye, and there's something he's working on with NASA, microgravity, more on that later. First, we'll talk about the ideas in play at the symposium in October, which will touch on innovations and challenges. This year, by the way, Dr. Wang was elected by his peers as the top-ranked ophthalmologist in the world. We'll ask him what that means, but first, your speakers are international and domestic, including Dr. Cynthia Maddox, who is the current president of the American Glaucoma Society. She's someone who thinks about patient care, but also the big picture. Can you share a little about what she'll bring? Dr. Maddox brings a particularly unique approach and a a unique topic. Uh, Normally, the topics that we talk about are really about delivering the care and also actually doing the research and some interesting findings. But... As the president of the American Glaucoma Society, Dr. Maddox is more or, or is heavily involved on the regulatory side in terms of how we take care of patients and do the work within the context of, of in this case, the United States and, and a lot of the challenges that we face. And so, uh, you know, Cindy has a uh, tremendous leadership role. Uh, in this country, uh, leading all the glaucoma scientists and the clinicians forward. And what she's really going to talk about is, you know, what are the challenges that we have now in taking care of people? And what are the challenges that we're, that she and we foresee coming? And, and what are the plans that the society has in place to tackle these things? Can you talk a little bit about what the regulatory environment is and sort of the insurance questions? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there are always new surgeries coming on board, and there are always... Uh, insurance questions about how these things are covered. And so, for instance, uh, for all types of medicine, different procedures are valued differently. And these kind of values change over time. And sometimes what can happen is that at the national level, decisions are made where the values are placed so that in some places in the country, the surgeries, for instance, can be taken off the table and made no longer available. Uh, because of what they have in those local communities. And so these are the kind of things that, you know, American Glaucoma Society pays very close attention to because, you know, we want to make sure that we provide as many options and as best as care as we possibly can throughout America. And so uh, these are kind of the challenges that we face with some of the recent glaucoma surgeries and, you know, how the uh, uh, the regulatory st- statutes regarding how you do them and how they get paid for uh, have played out recently. Is she responsible for what you would describe as sort of a lobbying effort on behalf of? Absolutely. In part, um, the American Glaucoma Society has a lobbying arm that will go out and make sure that our voices and opinions are known. But at the same time, she's also there as a representative of the group. And so, you know, she also has a job to understand the pulse of what we're thinking, what's important to us. Because it may be that, you know, some of these decisions on value are absolutely appropriate because, you know, better options, for instance, have come along the line. And so really, uh, on the one end, she is working with the government to lobby. But on the other end, she's working to understand what's important to us and represent us. I was going to ask you, actually, has the technology accelerated change in the field dramatically enough that some of the questions also shift? Or as you said, the values also shift? 
Oh, absolutely. But these things are slow moving. You know what I mean? Um, there are always new options coming along. And with every new option, you you ask the question of, you know, is it good? Is it worth it? And then on top of it, is it better than something that we've had before? Now, glaucoma is a particularly, you know, interesting field because there's so much research left to be done, both to understand why it occurs, in addition, how to best treat it so that uh, and on top of that, there's many levels of glaucoma. Some people have mild, moderate, and severe. And so what happens is that, you know, all the various treatment modalities kind of funnel into these different bins as we get new ones coming on about, oh, this treatment therapy's there. It's not that we're not going to do it anymore, but maybe it's best suited for this person, whereas this new treatment is best suited for this other person. And so it refines how we um, provide care to the community. On the international side, I know one of your speakers is from Brazil. Can you talk a little bit about the perspective from South America? Yeah, so this is Dr. Remo Susana. He's the uh, chair at Sao Paulo in the Department of Ophthalmology. And uh, one of the reasons that we're particularly excited that he's here is because they offer a, a, a very unique kind of um, diagnostic and um, assessment uh, method for glaucoma that's amenable and accessible to everybody. Basically, what they do in South America is, are these water drinking tests. We know that the average pressure of an eye is critically important to whether or not you have glaucoma and whether or not you progress in glaucoma. Um, but we don't know what a person's pressure is at every point in the day because, you know, we don't keep everyone overnight in the clinic and you know, I don't want to stay there overnight either. So with the water drinking test, um, what that's become is this one-time uh, uh, assessment where you can estimate what a person's maximum might be. And so it's very simple. What you do is you just have the patient come in. They haven't had anything to drink for a couple hours. You, drink, you have them drink a lot of water, in fact, in a very short period of time. How much and is a lot, just, Dr. Huang? Uh about a liter. So, okay. so you're talking about like uh, two bottles, you know, two of the uh, bottles you can buy at the store. And, 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 and it's within a couple of minutes, so it's fast. And you load the body and you look to see how the eye pressure responds. And, and oftentimes, not always, it gives you a real good window into how high does this person get. And that's a number that you want to try to blunt in terms of having pressures that high. Which is important because that test, as you were saying, could be applied virtually anywhere, uh, whether it's access to clean water, uh, rural areas, urban areas where there may be poverty, but treatment is needed. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the, the, the beauty of it is that it provides information that, A, is not already readily available because we don't check pressure 24 hours a day. And then, B, on top of that, it's cheap and easy. Different so it's from, accessible. Right. Different from having to have a smartphone with an app, which I know is one of the other <laughs> innovations, right? Right. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So as a researcher and a doctor who also sees patients, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit of your perspective on sort of what the latest and greatest is, both on the academic side and the biggest news for patients in the past year or so. I predominantly have two research programs. The first program looks at fluid flow in the eye in order to figure out how best to treat glaucoma because if we know where the fluid's going the idea is that we may be able to target surgery just to the right places to have the best um, eye pressure lowering result and so this is a technique that we developed called aqueous angiography uh, in the laboratory at UCLA Doheny and, and the thing that we're proud of is that really in three years since the birth of UCLA Doheny it started in the lab and 
and we've taken it to live people now uh, in the operating room with very interesting results. And so this is something that has moved forward greatly and I think uh, may have great uh, impact to um, figuring out new therapies in the future in addition to treating the people that we have now. In terms of uh, you know patients in general, I think that uh, one topic that is growing that also that UCLA Doheny we have some holes in are really kind of the connection between the eye and the rest of the body. So a couple examples. Uh, you're all aware of the recent you know, Zika epidemic in South America and also coming up here. And while uh, the numbers are starting to drop because all of these infections typically cycle, so we're on a down cycle, you know, you do expect them to cycle back up within something like five years. And this is an example where it's a body situation, an infection that then ultimately can lead to the eye and also impact the eye greatly. And so, you know, Dr. Irina Sway, who's, you know, one of our UCLA Department of Ophthalmology Retina Specialists at Stein and Doheny, you know, she's part of a multidisciplinary group uh, at UCLA who goes down to Brazil to basically study Zika. And in her role is to, is to study Zika in the eye. This is important because, like I said, the numbers are coming down now. So this is the best time to study it. Um, when it's A, safer, and B, um, to prepare yourself for the inevitable bump that's going to come. Another very interesting topic I think that's very relevant to our listeners and really all patients is there's been some pretty exciting developments, I think, related to Alzheimer's disease. You know, Alzheimer's, and we're not even talking about the eye anymore, right? Alzheimer's is a, is a dementia that impacts the brain. But what ends up happening is that you can't actually see the brain, right? It's in your skull. Uh, Alzheimer's is diagnosed actually by a survey and then confirmed after a patient's passed by the pathology. So it ended up that the only part of the brain that you can actually physically see is in the eye. It's the retina. The retina is, ex is an extension of the brain. And so there's been some recent work that we've evolved with with uh, Doheny Institute, uh, Ernie Barone, one of our uh, senior scientists, looking at finding the Alzheimer hallmarks, the amyloid plaques, if you will, in the retina instead of in the brain case, in the brain, and trying to develop uh, imaging modalities to pick that up so that you could envision turning Alzheimer's diagnosis management, and we're talking about a lot of people here you know, across the world, into an eye exam or an eye image. And so these are a couple examples where, you know, the eye is really an organ in the context of the whole body. And both eye problems can lead to systemic issues and systemic body issues can impact the eye. And, and, and it's, a, it's one area where it's really interesting and there's a lot of work to be done in terms of um, making new discovery. Thanks. And I'm wondering, Dr. Huang, can you finally update us on your NASA project, which we talked yeah, about when you were it. the very first guest ever on the Doheny podcast? Right. Right. So to, to remind, you know, everyone, um, this is one of uh, my other research programs, and it's <clears throat> related to visual impairment in space. This is one of the few truly visual mysteries left. It's not a cornea problem, a glaucoma problem, a retina problem. We don't know what the problem is. And the observation is that for the astronauts, American and otherwise, who've been in the International Space Station, uh, we know that the longer that they stay there, Without a doubt, they suffer changes to the eye, some of which lead to alterations in vision. And you can imagine that this is a big problem because if the goal, at least medium to short to medium term, is mission to Mars, that's going to be a long-haul space flight. 
you know, depending on how the planets are aligned and how fast you fly, you're probably talking about six months to get there, six months to get back, six months to do some work. So you're talking a decent amount of time where people, astronauts, may not be able to see well enough to perform their duties. And so at Doheny UCLA, we've had a, a collaborative uh, research agreement with NASA as well as NSBRI, the National Space Biomedical Research Institute, for the last couple of years. And, you know, our role in that was to try to test countermeasures, to try to figure out how can we potentially make things better. And so what we did was um, create circumstances of simulated microgravity, if you will, in Pasadena. That sounds very fancy. Really what it means is that we just invert people so their feet are very high and their head's very low, so the fluid's going to their head. And then um, using various ophthalmic techniques and imaging modalities, we looked for changes. We looked for changes, identifying changes. And then we uh, applied countermeasures that they had considered to see if we could reverse some of these. And, and you know, it, from an early standpoint, you know, we've had some good success uh, to the point where our, our first manuscript has been written, reviewed relatively favorably, and, and we're preparing the rebuttal right now. So uh, we hope to get our first peer-reviewed published results out really in the next three months. Sounds like amazing research, but it also ironically a little bit low tech in Pasadena <laughs> with an inversion table it sounds like or well uh, well in this you can use an inversion table uh, in this case we use a, a, a triangular piece of foam so that um, it's a little steadier you're just laying there and um, with your feet up and, and you know the leading hypothesis for the problem seen in space is that you know normally with gravity our fluid hangs out by our legs but without gravity it all redistributes up to our uh, really redistributes to your whole body so that there's a net upward shift. And so, you know, for instance, one of the things that the astronauts frequently uh, describe is kind of a space sickness kind of situation yeah. where where your sinuses in your head, you just feel clogged all the time, like you're always having a cold because of all that volume. And so the leading hypothesis here is that all that volume in your brain, your eye, your head is what's actually causing some of these changes. And so for us to do the best we can on Earth to simulate the volume. Uh, we tilt people so that the volume goes to your head. Thanks for explaining. Good visual. Thank you for explaining. The other headline for you earlier this year, you were voted the world's top ophthalmologist. Congratulations, I'm sure, but I'm not sure. Thank you very much. Who decides and what does that mean? Got it, got it. Well, this was a, a great honor uh, for me. Um, this was a distinction uh, from the ophthalmologist. Uh, which is a magazine based out of Europe. And um, for a long time, they've had power rankings where they rank, you know, um, what the magazine deems as the, you know, the most prominent ophthalmologists, you know, in the world. Uh, they have their own editorial board as well as um, their list of ophthalmologists that I, my understanding is that they're the ones who really, you know, make the choice. You don't apply for this. Um, somehow you're just nominated and then, you know, decided upon, you know, um, it is a great honor, but I, what I will say is, you know, while it is a, it is a kind of a world magazine, uh, to be a little humble, this is really more a ranking for the kids table. I haven't made it to the adult table yet. Um, <laughs> uh, most of the times the ranking is for the top 100 really throughout the world. And, and what this particular ranking this year focused on instead was, uh, younger clinicians and young clinician scientists, um, uh -huh. people who, whom they uh, deemed um, had great promise to basically shape the future, if you will. 
But the headline is that you're number one, and he's a really nice guy, too. Dr. Wang, thank you so much for your time and for explaining the critical issues in glaucoma research, which you and your colleagues will address here in Los Angeles at the second annual Doheny UCLA International Glaucoma Symposium. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joni. The Doheny Eye Institute, at the forefront in eradicating eye disease for nearly 70 years, is dedicated to providing state-of-the-art clinical services and supporting leading researchers in the quest for treatments that stabilize and improve the precious sense of sight. Doheny is now affiliated with UCLA Stein Eye Institute. For more information about our doctors and their innovative work in the quest for better vision, visit our website, doheny.org.